Welcome to the Tim Hill Podcast. If you have the time, you can not only listen to the episodes, but you can also watch all the shows and you'll find the links in the description below. Thank you. The Tim Hill Podcasts. Ordinary people's extraordinary stories. Welcome to the Tim Hill Podcast. In this episode, I'm going to have a chat with Doug. So, Doug, if you can tell me when and where you were born, and if you can describe to me what it was like where you grew up, the schools you went to, and the education that you received. Sure, Tim. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. As you're eventually going to tell, I, I have a bit of my own accent. I am a native Texan. I was born in the large uh, town of Houston, Texas, but did not grow up here. Uh, at a very early age, my family moved to San Antonio, which is about three hours to our west out of Houston. I uh, had all my early schooling years in San Antonio. I was actually raised the only child of a single mom. My father had passed at a very early age. He died when I was two years old. He had some liver trouble and um, passed away. So at two years old, I, I you know, really never knew who he was. But um, growing up in San Antonio was a great adventure. It was a great place to grow up. At the time in history, San Antonio had five military bases. <laughs> Wow. So just about everybody you ever got to meet or know had something to do with military. Either they were married to a military service member or had a relative or something. So it was, uh, it was a very predominant theme in the area. For me, um, so that... What, what sort of area was that? I'm sorry? What sort of area was that? Uh, I'm guessing no, about sort of the, the early, maybe mid-90s, something 1960s. like 1960s. <laughs> yeah, yeah, 1960s, 60s 60s. and 70s. All right. So, so San, San Antonio at that time then, what, what sort of military was there? Was it, is it a coastal town? No, the, no, it's, uh, it's, it's land, isn't it? central, central Texas. Hmm. Very inland, uh, very hot most of the time. It was a so-called dry heat if we had heat. Uh, because we were inland, we didn't get any of the Gulf Coast effects. You know, the Texas Gulf Coast gets quite a bit of climate change on a regular basis. Um, and every once in a while, the infamous hurricane blows up and uh, creates weather <laughs> events for us. But uh, it's part of living in the territory here. We're, we're kind of a catcher's mitt for hurricanes. <laughs> yeah. So the military bases, then, were they predominantly Army or did it, were they Marines or, or was it Air Force? There were, there, there were two air bases, actually, well, two air bases, principally Lackland, which is where to this day Air Force basic training happens in the U.S., uh, Lackland Air Force Base. Then there was a pilot training center called Randolph. And I actually live not far from that base. I, there was a large military base, their army base there, named uh, Fort Sam Houston. That's Army Medical Center. 
So a lot of the training for doctors and nurses and specialists, specialties in the Army medicine are done out of Fort Sam Houston. Fort Sam still exists. Randolph still exists. Lackland still exists. There were two other lesser bases that uh, went away about 30 years ago. So growing up in that area then with a large sort of military presence, I, I guess... Um, did you have anything to do with the military? I did. For me, it became uh, quite a quite a motivator. I was uh, interested very much in pursuing a military career when I was younger. I uh, took first steps toward that goal by joining the high school ROTC unit. It's it's called ROTC Reserve Officer Training Corps. And uh, we would wear uniforms to school and we had military science classes and we conducted military oriented activities and learning a lot of the basics, how to read a map, how to read a compass, how to uh, shoot a rifle and do some other things. And being a member of that program for three years in high school set me up for uh, college opportunity. Mm. Um, can can I just take you back to sort of um, sort of Rad saw your your elementary or or your middle school, uh, and have a look at what you were doing at that time. Yeah, um, nothing particularly uh, dramatic then in elementary. I did change schools three times as as an elementary student. That's. For us, it was first through sixth grade. Um, I tell a life story that had a long-term effect on me when I made that um, second transfer. The district we moved into was considered one of the higher-rated districts. Their standards were much greater. I was only in second grade, but I was moving in the middle of the spring semester which back in those days, we had six six-week terms in the school year. I was moving in the middle of the fifth one, <laughs> which is a bad time to move. <laughs> the, it's always a good time to move. <laughs> the, the school informed me that in order for me to be passed on to the third grade in their program, I had to make up all of the reading book, workbook assignments for the whole year. Wow in a six week and a half, well, so a nine week time frame, I went on a crash course of reading little books that, uh, you know, they weren't more mature than a second grader would do. But I tell the story that jaundiced me toward reading. I hated reading. I, and I, to this day as an adult, I struggle with that. I, am not a person that just says, oh, goody, goody, here's the latest, greatest book. I just can't wait to turn the page and crack this open. Now, does that say I don't read at all? No. I I mean, I read well. I'm, I'm not stymied as far as my reading ability, but my passion and interest for it is a real struggle. Hmm. Well, I'm on the other side of the fence there. Um, <laughs> I, I, I suffer from dyslexia, which is a, 
it's a little bit of a debilitating thing when it comes to reading. I mean, I, I, I quite like reading. I mean, I've, I if there's a book that I'm interested in, I'll, I'll persevere and I'll read it. Um, I used to collect an awful lot of escape stories uh, from the Second World War, uh, and I was an avid reader of those. And, uh, and me and my best mate, we used to go around bookshops and we used to we try and get first first covers and, and, and stuff like that for yeah. these books and we, we we would read them and we'd share them um, and then when the Harry Potters come out I've, I've read all the Harry Potters a, a two or three times um, it just takes me quite a bit of time to read because because of the dyslexia it, 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 the words kind of get jumbled up a little bit but I mean it's, it's, it's something that I occasionally like to do if I've got an interest in that particular book well, I've often said that I might have ended up going to law school were it not for the reading requirements. Um, <clears throat> I just, I actually pondered that possibility at great length and then realized that for all the reading that it would require, I just wasn't interested. But um, again, it's not to say I can't, I just, uh, my hunger for it is is really a struggle. Now, what I've found through my adult life I go through these odd periods where I am hungry to read. I'll, I'll, uh, I'll read a whole collection of author books. I've got about six bookshelves. I'm looking above me here. My bookshelf is right in front of me here as we're speaking. <clears throat> um, I've read a whole collection of fiction and mystery novels and things like that. I'll get hooked on them and I'll go well, but then six or seven months into that cycle, all of a sudden it's like, nah, not today. <laughs> I'm done. <laughs> and it goes away. So the elementary school then, so you were over keen on reading, but how did you get on at the end of that, that um, semester? I, just fine. I passed all the requirements and I was I was elevated to the third grade and everything beyond that was just fine. Very, very normal. I um, even as a young child, I was an extracurricular kid. I, I was excited to do everything possible that was outside of the classroom in in school. I um, my wife teases me to this day. I got my sights set on an, a role at the elementary school, I wanted to be captain of the crossing guards. We, back in those days, we let students uh, help administer the school crossings. And there was training and there was, you know, we had all the right reflective gear and signs and so forth so that we weren't just young children standing in traffic, but, and there were adult supervisors out there, but uh, that was a thing. And it was, it was part of the education program that helped people learn leadership and, and service to the community and those kinds of things. And I was just always enthralled doing that. It wasn't about the badge or the, or the color of my shield, you know, but it was, <laughs> it was just the idea of, of being out there and being able to help. That, that was a thing that, I identified early on in my life, and it, it stayed with me all the way through middle school. I ran for student council office and became a class leader, and and through that had to 
had to serve in various extracurricular roles and capabilities. Mm. I, I figured out early on I was not particularly athletic. I tried out for the middle school basketball team, and my coach actually said, you really cannot chew gum and walk at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> so did you play any other sport? Other no, sport? I did not. I never did. I mean, just, you know, my own extracurricular. I played tennis and golf and things like that, but never, never competitive team sport. Mm. So what was your favorite subject in middle school? Middle school, middle school favorite subject. I actually would say um, for middle school, it was math. I had an instructor that became a, a mentor and um, he was just, he made it interesting. He made it exciting and made it fun. And I was probably my best one then. Mm. So people fall on two sides of the fence with math. <laughs> they either love it or hate it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what was your worst subject then? Which one did you not like going to? Well, I, I did not like going to phys ed. That was the gym <laughs> class. That was a requirement. And I I had already, already alienated myself with the coaches. And <laughs> it wasn't fun to go do that. <laughs> Uh, sort of track and field and uh, I guess in the summer months and then it's, it's just football in the winter months. So you didn't, oh, yeah. didn't shine at any of that then? No, no, didn't, didn't enjoy any of that. Fair one. So moving on then, your graduation from middle school to go to, was it high school or middle high? Um, we had We had a two-year, we call it junior high, or nowadays they call it middle school here. Um, it, was, it was only a two-year program. Our district had gone through a bit of a transition. So the high school was a four-year program. So ninth, 10th, 11th, and 12th grade was considered high school. So I was only in middle school for two years, then moved over to the high school. And did you get to choose what subjects you did, or, or, or did they no, not so much stuff. No, not we in in our high school program. It was fairly um, prescribed. I was placed in advanced classes because of all the test scores that were done. Um, Today, I think, in, in at least in the U.S. education system, they consider them advanced placement classes or AP classes. Uh, we didn't call it that then. It was just simply accelerated. And all of the core subjects, math, science, English, and even history, was um, given an elevated course. And effectively, what it meant, if I stayed that in that program, which I did, by the time I was a senior, I was taking college-level classes at high school. Hmm. So, if if you didn't if if you didn't shine at sports, did you do theatre or music? No, for me, as I mentioned earlier, the uh, program that I opted for was the ROTC, the Military Science. 
we we did have some special uh, units. We had uh, what was called a drill team. It was a it was a marching group. We did a, a precision marching with rifles, and you've probably seen them in parades. You know they're yeah. spinning the rifles and throwing the rifles and doing things like that. And that's what I opted to go for. Yes, of of, of course. Us in the British Army don't do that sort of drill. Yeah, <laughs> we do. We do proper drill. <laughs> well, our team, when we went to competition, we were required to do the prescribed, you know, drill by the book. Yeah. We had to demonstrate that capacity, but then there was always an opportunity for a, a exhibition drill uh, routine that was custom designed, custom oriented, and um, and graded accordingly. Yeah. Hmm. So, how did the team do? Did Did you win any major competitions? Or we did. We uh, We won our district competition and uh, several other events. We, my senior year, I was commander of the team, and and we um, we won five different events, I believe, and plus our. Our school district, four major high schools competed against each other at the district level. We won that. Oh, excellent. So when you graduated from high school then, um, did you go graduate with honours because you was on the accelerated program? I did. I did. I, However, I'll, um, I chuckle about this. I was... Um, what you might think of as honors like magna cum laude, summa cum laude, we didn't really, we didn't really talk about that at, at the high school, but we did uh, spotlight the so-called top ten percent of the class, and I was officially in the top ten percent of the class, but like Ulysses S. Grant, I had the last slot in that top ten percent. <laughs> <laughs> Well, don't know yourself. There <laughs> were was an eleventh. <laughs> there were five hundred and twenty students in my senior class, and I was number fifty-two in the in the class ranking. So I was exactly in the, the most top 10%. <laughs> Better most. Yep. So moving on to to college, did you get a scholarship, or or did you have to work your way through? Well, interesting story. I did end up ultimately getting a scholarship, but um, part of the backstory on that was because of some of my bias and, and interest in making military a career, I had fancied myself going to Texas A&M and joining the famous Corps of Cadets there at A&M. That had been a, I had a cousin that was about actually 12 years older than me who had gone to A&M and I met him in his senior boots, his, the, the, the marquee, uh, uh, trademark of the core. I was just mesmerized by that and said, I want to do that one day. That's my goal. And so that's what I'd always thought. Uh, always cheered for A&M when they played football, et cetera, and was just convinced that's where I was going my senior year in high school, because of some of the things I had accomplished, some of the instructors and mentors encouraged me to consider other options. And through a series of events, I 
met one day with the U.S. Secretary of Defense. He had come to San Antonio to tour the military bases, and the Department of Defense decided to do a PR day. They selected one high school cadet to be his aide for the day, and I got picked to be that cadet. Oh. And so I spent the day walking around in the entourage with the Secretary of Defense, and we were leaving lunch, and he asked me, he said, where do you want to go to school? And I naively said, I want to go to West Point. And he said, okay, done. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I kind of went, excuse me. And he said, no, he, he said, give, he pointed to one of the other guys in the entourage. He said, when you get a minute, give them all your information. And I went, okay. So sure enough, um, I didn't have to go through congressional appointment and all that. I had a direct appointment from the secretary of defense to go to West Point. Wow. The, um, did you take it up? I did not. <laughs> the announcement letter arrived several weeks later. And when I had it in my hand, I was visibly shaken and my mother said, what's wrong? And I said, this letter means I'm not going to A&M. And she said, well, it could mean that, but it doesn't have to mean that. What do you really want to do? And I said, I really want to go to A&M. And she said, then tell them you're not coming to West Point. <laughs> <laughs> so I didn't go. So did you go to A&M? I did. I did. I, I was awarded an Army scholarship to go to A&M and, and uh, had the opportunity to do that. And then, uh, of course, with the Army scholarship, I did owe the U.S. Army some service after school. So I was commissioned a second lieutenant, uh, went into service and was on active duty for four years. Oh. So you didn't go to West Point then? No, did not. But you, but could you, could you have done after you finished at A um, and Um, possibly. I, I, I never really pursued that. I just, I let my notice to them that I wasn't coming be the final word. So. So let's have a look at your military career. <laughs> Well, I, as history would have it, I entered active duty in the summer of 1975. And if you roll the clock, that was two years after the U.S. exited Vietnam. We, we pulled troops out of Vietnam in 1973 and see, half of my college career, I was expecting to put on my lieutenant bars and ship out to Vietnam. That was, that was what was going to happen. But in the middle of my college, uh, the U.S. pulled out of Vietnam, exited that war. And when I commissioned and went on active duty in 1975, uh, being there the four years I was happens to be one of the very brief points in U.S. military history when we were not engaged in a major action anywhere in the globe. 
Hmm. There were some skirmishes and there were some other things that were going on. There was a little skerfuffle down in Panama and there was some, I believe the Brits had their experience in Grenada and a few other places. Um, But by and large, I was on duty during peacetime. Hmm. So where was your first posting? Where was your first draft? I went to a school, a specialty school at Fort Lee, Virginia. I was in Virginia for about six months doing two two training programs, actually. And the Army um, placed me in what ultimately became, well, it was the Quartermaster Corps, but even within the Quartermaster Corps, I chose a food service specialty. <laughs> so uh, I was trained at the Army Food School. <clears throat> And by the way, you'll you'll take interest in this. While I was at the Army Food School, when we got to the portion of the school about uh, pastries and baking, we had an exchange instructor from the Queen's Guard. She was the Queen's chief. He was the Queen's chief baker. Ah. And he was my Army Catering Corps. No he, he was my instructor at the uh, Army Food School. So I learned how to make some of the most dazzling and amazing cinnamon rolls that you could ever imagine. <laughs> <laughs> All done by hand. But... Um, I was then transferred, after all the schooling, I took a duty station at a place called Fort Rucker, Alabama, which is the Army Flight School. All right. That's where they teach all of their helicopter pilots. And some, we did have some fixed-wing aviation activity there. I was not a pilot. I did not go to the flight school to be trained as a pilot. I was a support officer on the base. So you was a catering officer then? Mm, For a time, only for a short time. I did that for about a year, and then I moved over to the housing office, and I ran the bachelor officer quarters, the 760-room hotel we had on base. (laughs) (laughs) So I was essentially hotel and hospitality. So was that all part of the the catering officer job that you trained for? It was it, it was considered a, a correlation of that, yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Did you ever get an overseas posting? I did not. Oh, I, I missed not. out. So you could I have pro- ended up in Germany. I protected southeast Alabama from enemy attack and we were very successful. <laughs> Excellent. So you just did your, your four year stint in the military and I, I did that um did that pay back your uh, tuition for putting you through the it did. Texas A&M? Yes, it did. Ah. So what did you do when you left the military? So so I guess you're still classed as a veteran, so you, you, you get all the VA support and everything if you need it. You rock up to any VA hospital and, and you can still claim treatment to this day. Well, um, 
probably too long a story to get into, but partly related to the peacetime segment that I described, uh, I do not get 100% of the VA benefits that combat veterans do. Uh, I, I cannot walk into a VA hospital. Nope, I don't get that. Well, that's a shame. You're still um, a veteran. <laughs> yeah, it's, again, it's, it's, not- it's, a, it's a long story, but I... I I truthfully, part of me in, in, in my own mind, I, um, I don't, I don't quibble about that. What I did get for VA from VA, they paid for a master's degree. I I went to graduate school and got an MBA and that was paid for, paid for through the VA. So I'm, I'm thankful for that. It was a bonus and, um, didn't have to pay a dime to go to graduate school. So. So what did you do after after was, the military? Yeah, what, what was the, what was the, 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 the I through a series of events looking for a job in the civilian world. I connected with an old college friend and went to work for a large regional bank here in uh, Houston. It was at the time it was called Texas Commerce. It was about uh, seventeen billion dollar bank. Um, in the U.S., we were still in what was considered unit banking laws. Uh, there was no interstate banking. You couldn't have branches of a bank across the state line, uh, nor could you have branches across cities. You had to have unit banks in each location. So what we had was a holding company. We had 71 banks spread across the state of Texas that were part of our holding company, but each one by charter was technically a separate bank. Hmm. Was all the money sort of centrally in one pot, or was it just individual banks, but the holding company was just set over the top of it all? Yeah, there there was still a. Uh, it was the precursor to large scale branch banking, and and branch banking did happen while I was at the bank. It, in the early '80s, laws were changed both statewide and and nationally in the U.S. that uh, there could be branch banking allowed, and we rolled all of our 71 banks into just one giant network system. I'm guessing there's an awful lot of benefits to to having a central system where you've got central purchasing and all the rest of it. So right. and you've got corporate right. um, branding and everything like that, just to make life a lot easier for everybody. Um, it did, yes. In, in the group, yeah. So was it while you were there that you you, you got funded by the the VA to go and do the the. the no, I had actually uh, done my graduate school while I was on active duty at Fort Rucker, Alabama. It was concurrent. I was going to night school, uh, working days, and going to night school to get my MBA. And what was it in? So I had, uh, it, it was general business and operations management. All right. So that sort of set you up for going into the bank then? Yeah, it it was a good segue into the bank. And um, because of my military background, I was actually recruited at the bank to go into the operations part of the bank and run 
support teams and um, various operational units. And that's what I did for the next 20 years. I stayed at the bank a full 20. Hmm. So what happened at the back end of that then? Why did you leave? Well, banking was going through quite a bit of turmoil. I went through three different mergers and my bank ultimately became uh, J.P. Morgan Chase. Hmm. And uh, we became the Chase Bank of Texas. And so um, after the third one, I said, I've had as much fun as I would like in this game. And, uh, and they were offering early retirement packages for folks. And I said, give me the money. I'm ready to go. So I took uh, off like a scaldy cat. I <laughs> took, took off. Run. I did as um, as uh, Jerry Maguire did in the movie. You show me the money. I I took the package and bolted out the door as fast as I could. <laughs> no, but I that sounds like I had bad feelings. I don't. It was a great experience and uh, a whole lot of learning. One one tidbit about that that I'll share is our bank happened to be one of the best run organizations of its kind. And to prove that part of the time, most of the time I was there, we were on a string of running off 24 consecutive quarters of earnings growth. So 16 years, we grew earnings quarter by quarter by quarter. And you can imagine Wall Street loved our stock and our stock value was just phenomenal. And the big thing for me was the learning, the leadership team I became a part of, some of the disciplines we learned about budgeting, planning, managing, monitoring KPI, being held accountable, all of those things. I was young enough and new enough to banking that I just thought, well, that's how all banks must run. Mm-hmm. And only later did I find, no, 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 that's not true. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think that was born out through your military experience, bringing the military ethos to the banking world where I'm not quite sure about the American army, but certainly the British army or the British military, um, we go above and beyond the call of duty to get the job done. Oh, yeah. That's what probably makes us the best in the world because we we have this can-do attitude. Um, I I have worked with Americans and I've got a different opinion of that. But what was your experience coming from the military background uh, into the, the banking world? I think it definitely was a factor. And in fact, um, again, I alluded to several of the officers that uh, the bank officers that were recruiting me and doing the interviewing were themselves ex-military. So they they felt an affinity there. And, and as we talked about various things with training and background and experience from the Army, uh, you know, they were sort of mentally checking boxes. And I think there were uh, there, there was definitely a, a very direct transferability of mindset and operations. And I was, you know, I was given some good opportunities very early on in 
leadership roles. And it was just a given that because of uh, my military background, they, they didn't challenge capability of moving into a role that might otherwise, you know, not been given to somebody that didn't have that. So the, the transferability was definitely there. And, and the, uh, I think the mindset about setting missions, setting visions, setting, uh, accountability and, and, uh, delegation, you know, young managers in the civilian world struggle with the whole notion of delegating work. Mm-hmm. It's, it's one of the common things that I do now as an executive coach, trying to help people. The person that has just come up through a civilian job opportunity, um, if they've been placed in management and they've made two or three promotions since then, they are still inevitably struggling with the idea of delegating. It's like I... I have a person on my team. They're not as equally equipped as I am. It's just easier for me to do it myself. And, and in the military, of course, you don't do that at all. You, you, you immediately delegate. And if the person can't perform, you get them to training. You give them more training and, and you make sure they learn how to perform. Absolutely. So is that what you did when, when you got your package uh, after 20 odd years in the bank, did you then set up on your own as a, as a coach? Or, or did, you, did you transfer into something else first? Well, I did something else first. I, I did what classic bankers do when they retire, they become consultants. And so I created a small consulting company and was doing work for many years with my old bank customers. So we had the relationships and they had the need. And again, I was doing a lot of operations, uh, process improvement, technology migrations, technology implementations. But what I realized along the way was that most of my consulting clients really wanted to talk about coaching issues they would um, call me in after I'd been on the job a few weeks and they would have a topic they wanted just to bounce off somebody that wasn't in their chain of command. It would be an idea about a a problem they were having or maybe about their own boss or just any number of things. And we would sit there and talk about it and not necessarily directly related to our, our consulting project at all but just their own leadership challenge. And I um, didn't think a lot about that at first. I just enjoyed the opportunity to do that. But as, as years went on and I started to get tired of the travel that went with consulting, as, as many consultants do, I started exploring what other alternatives there might be. And the idea of becoming an executive coach seemed to be the solution. So I... Um, pursued some training in that area and through a series of events. I actually go all the way back to 2008. I consider the the real launch of my coaching business because I was doing a, a lot of work in a nonprofit organization, helping people in career transition. I, um, actually started the nonprofit when we had the big financial crash in 2008. 
Yeah, I mean, that, that affected an awful lot of people around the world, not just yeah. in America. Yeah. So that's, that's where your, your business that you do now was born, I guess. Yeah, it really was. And then, um, like I said, I augmented what I already knew from practical experience about building teams and creating businesses to um, basically help other people do that. Hmm. So how did you go about setting that business up? Um, not too dissimilar from a couple of other businesses I had started just from a pure technical standpoint, you know, went and prepared and filed all the right papers to set up an LLC and get that going. But more importantly, it, it, it was about getting the word out that I was going to be available and doing this. So I took advantage of a lot of the technology that's out there with websites and social media and, and those kinds of channels to spread the word that I was coaching. And uh, today, similar to yourself, I have a podcast that's got quite a good following that I'm very happy about. And um, we publish three shows a week. Uh, wow. Title of the series is Leadership Powered by Common Sense. We talk about all things it takes to be an effective business leader and cover really the full waterfront. I mean, a wide spectrum of topics that we get into on that show. Hmm. So how can people pick up on that show if they want to listen in and... Uh... Maybe engage with it. We're we're on just about every major streaming service, you know, Apple, Amazon, Google, Spotify, Pandora. <clears throat> Again, the name of this show is Leadership Powered by Common Sense. Yeah, that's <laughs> that, that's something that's in short supply a lot of the time. Common sense. <laughs> well, that's exactly the genesis of the idea. I I have struggled over my career running into people that have been designated as a leader over me and they're not demonstrating a lot of common sense. <laughs> and, and so I've always found that the, uh, and then to your point, this goes back to the military training, you know, we, military is big on the keep it simple, stupid, you know, and, and uh, be very direct and very clear don't let it get complicated because um, another saying that I'm a big fan of is a confused mind says no. So if you're leading a team and you're putting out a bunch of jargon in your instruction and you see the eyes glazed over in the audience, you, you, you better search for some clarity because your people are confused and they're going to basically say no to the assignment, whatever it may be. <laughs> so how did the pandemic affect you? What, how did you get on? Uh, I got to be honest. Uh, I have not run numbers. I should probably run numbers, but my sense is my activity just about doubled during the pandemic. I, I had a lot more demand for doing coaching with people, um, helping people figure out 
trouble they were having. As an example, I was running a mastermind group. I had uh, 12 business owners, local Houston area business owners that were on this mastermind with me. When the pandemic hit, we had been meeting only once a month as a group. They begged and pleaded that we meet every week as a group to try to share ideas, explore answers, and and just be a support group for each other. And two of the members there in that group sadly had to close their businesses because of the pandemic. Uh, others survived and and stayed strong and and recovered but it was it was touch and go for a lot of people for a long time there just just because of the sheer uncertainty of what the pandemic was bringing to us nobody knew mm. yeah so you managed to <laughs> do very well out of the pandemic yeah yeah and that's that brings us kind of up to date then do you still do most of your business online now I am. Yeah, I, I do virtually all of my business. And, and that was the other thing about the pandemic. I I essentially had been working from home for 25 years. So the remote work thing was a non-event for me. I was already had my equipment. I was already wired for um, the remote connectivity with people. So, uh, and I was already working at home, so I didn't have to adjust anything. I I didn't have to figure out a new lifestyle, <laughs> but, um, yeah, it's, um, it's, it's, it's just about a hundred percent remote. I have a few local clients that mm. I'll engage with, you know, we'll go out and have a coffee or a lunch or something periodically just to stay fresh, but uh, just about everything is virtual. Mm. Well, Doug, thank you. I've enjoyed that. That's been really insightful. Well, I appreciate it, Tim. Appreciate the opportunity. And, you know, if there's anything I can do for you or any of the guests on your show, uh, happy to help. Brilliant. Thank you so much. The Tim Hill Podcasts. Ordinary people's extraordinary stories. Welcome to the Tim Hill Podcast. If you have the time, you can not only listen to the episodes, but you can also watch all the shows and you'll find the links in the description below. Thank you.